I'd like to welcome you to our celebration of Daryl Brown's new book, Free Market Criminal Justice. And I would also like to thank our panelists for making uh, the journey up to Charlottesville today, uh, as well as the Virginia Journal of Criminal Law, and especially, especially Julia Schatz for helping uh, with the organization of this event. As many of you know, Daryl Brown has maintained a long interest in foundational theories of criminal law. What some of you might not know is that Daryl also has a deep practical background in criminal law. Uh, before uh, coming to join us on the faculty, he, he worked as a criminal defense attorney in Georgia, where he um, served as the lead attorney in over 30 jury trials. And over his uh, career, by positioning himself at the intersection of theory and practice, Daryl has been able to advance uh, many influential themes about how our criminal justice system really works, including detailed looks at juries, plea bargaining, and the institutional choices between criminal and civil liability. With his latest book, Daryl breaks new ground in multiple directions. He asks how we should understand the role of both democratic processes and market mechanisms in our criminal justice system. Now, it's difficult to make sense of these practices without context, and much of the book also offers a comparative look at the choices that other countries make with respect to how to organize and run and operate their criminal justice system. The book thus sheds light on a variety of concerns two of which include the increased and perhaps unsustainable use of incarceration in our criminal justice system, as well as the various pressures on our government and society to provide security in a world that is perceived by some as having an increased array of risks across multiple fronts. I'm also pleased that Professor Brandon Garrett will, will serve as the moderator of this discussion. Brandon's work has spanned many parallel issues in criminal law, including problems that lead to the conviction of the innocent, the recent approach we have taken to punishing corporations with deferred prosecution agreements, and most recently, the declining role of the death penalty in the American criminal justice system. I look forward to having Brandon steer the conversation. Daryl's book, here it is, uh, like George put so well in his introduction, uh, describes how free market ideology and democracy and localism has produced a, a uniquely American approach towards criminal justice. And, and Joe suggested sparking things, but, but Ron is going to get to talk about this first, and then Joe. Raising the two questions, why here and why now? And so we have exceptional levels of incarceration in this country. Why here? Daryl talks about that quite a bit in his book, uh, What Is It About America?, uh, but he also wants us to talk about, you know, well, why now? Why, why did whatever these forces are produce these changes in America over the last few decades? And so I thought that might be one place to start. What do you think, Ron? Well, the, the, this terrific book gives us a lot of material to work with on the why here question. So there's, um, I'm, I'm an, an empiricist at heart. I like to find a theory and go test a theory. I mean, theories are made for testing. And this book gives me some wonderful material to take to different places and walk in and say, what would I predict about this place's criminal justice system, given what I know about the political culture of this place, or given what I know about the, uh, the views about markets and autonomy and the role of government? 
what would that likely tell me under the Brown theory about the shape of criminal justice? So it's, it presents lots of wonderful testable uh, propositions uh, about comparative criminal uh, justice. The why now question is something that, uh, that Daryl's book also engages with, but maybe less, uh, at, in less depth than the, uh, than the why here question. But I would say even there we get some very nice accounts of well-known but poorly explained long-term trends in U.S. criminal justice. So, for instance, the, the role of juries over time, uh, we get a very nice account of how that interacts with notions of, of uh, populism. Uh, there's sort of a conundrum going on there with you know, juries shrinking and yet in some aspects of criminal justice have become more populist. When we think of the jury as the populist, you know, the, the location for popular input into criminal justice. So Daryl, I think, gives us some nice ways to think about and really to solve those, some of those long-term puzzles. But uh, for me, the part of the puzzle that remains is the more recent history. Uh, and I won't go into great depth on that because I think Joe knows more about that. But I'll just say that I call this the hockey stick problem that if you were to map out the rate of incarceration in the United States over the you know, eight to ten decades where we have reasonably decent numbers about incarceration rates, uh, it looks like a hockey stick that's been laid down on its end. That is, you start you know, really early on and it's bouncing around around 100 per 100,000, and then right at the end of that graph it bumps up like a hockey stick. And so the question I... Uh, mull over as I finish Daryl's book is what about the hockey stick problem? But I'll hand that to Jeff. All right, so if I could just break with the format just a little bit before I add some questions, I do want to say something nice about the book. <laughs> you know, um, mm-hmm. first of all, let me say showing up on a panel to take questions about your book is a mugs, a mugs game, you know, a game you can't win. The reason is you can state a question in much fewer words than you can answer it, right? So you've got a couple of panelists here who are all going to be saying questions, and there's no way Daryl could possibly answer all of them in the time he'll have. But um, This is what we do to you in class. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's a game you've played before, right? Um, but let me say something nice of, uh, about the book. Is, um, I actually came up with a metaphor for that captured what I think is so great about this book. Is, you know, when people first started figuring out how to fly, they looked at birds, and the thing that you notice if you look at the birds is the motion of the wings. So early human attempts at flight involved flapping things, right? And they failed, <laughs> often fatally, right? Because birds don't fly by pushing air down. I mean, we, we, that's the thing we notice when we look at birds, because it's the motion. Our eyes attract to the motion. That's not how birds fly. Birds fly because of the shape of the wings, right? It's the shape of the wings which creates a differential in air pressure, which lifts birds up. So in a similar way, what Daryl does so well in this book is he doesn't talk about all the, the motion. He doesn't talk about all the things that so many criminal, law, criminal justice scholars have talked about for years, where you know the, the, the Warren Court revolution in criminal procedure and the backlash against it, the areas where the you know, law gets inserted into the criminal justice system. Instead, he focuses attention on what's not moving, the essential structures, right? The, the adjudication process, plea bargaining, how, law, how broadly or how narrowly laws are written, right? the things that the rest of us really have been neglecting. But these are things that, like the wings that cut through the air, 
it's the essential shape of the system. And it's, 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 it's deeply important, and he, of course, brings two powerful insights to bear about the role that democratic politics and markets play in establishing that essential shape. So this is, I think, a, a wonderful contribution to literature, and I, I wanted to say that before we start digging in. <laughs> okay. So the why here, why now question, let me try and put a point on it. I won't add too much more to what's already been said. So these two essential features of the structure of criminal justice, right, the role of the market... Market, you know, market ideology, laissez-faire market ideology in particular, and the role of democratic politics in shaping criminal justice, that has been with American society from its inception, right? So, so those, focusing attention on two features clearly explains why we might be particularly punitive here as opposed to Europe, but it doesn't really explain why we've only recently become so hyperpunitive. I mean, as late as like the 30s, our sentences were a lot lighter than the sentences in Western Europe. Now, Daryl does, you know, um, address this question. He emphasizes two things. He emphasizes more recently we've seen an increase in political polarization and an increase in economic inequality. And he makes a convincing sort of account about how that, that is why more recently we've become more punitive. But, so this is the point, this is the sharp point on the question, we have seen periods of hyperpolarization and gross economic inequality early in our history, and they didn't result in hyperpunitive criminal justice policies. So I'd say that question remains, why, you've answered why here, why have you become so punitive now? I'll stop there. Is this where I jumped in? Yes. Yeah. You don't have to, it's up to you. <laughs> well, I will start by saying thank you to my uh, colleagues and, uh, and to the journal and to the law school for hosting this and to all of you for um, for spending your lunch hour here. Uh, it's very flattering to have the attention, particularly of these panelists, as well as, as, well as all of you. Um, and with respect to the uh, sort of why now do we see this hyper-punitivism in American criminal justice kind of roughly since the starting in the 80s, um, I'll beg off part of the question by saying I don't purport to offer a full theory of that or, the, or that the things I talk about and focus on are not the sole cause. They're, con- I think, contributing causes t- to that. Um, and so one thing I talk about is that the common law system of adjudication generally, right, just the common law trial, the adversarial party system, kind of shares a lot of be- kind of basic premises with markets, right? And so you tend to see the common law adversarial system in England, other common law countries, U.S., right? also tend to be the countries that are a little more free market oriented, right? All, everywhere is a capitalist country now, but they're less sort of social democratic, social welfare states on the European model and more kind of liberal, <coughs> neoliberal, liberal, free market kinds of economies. And you see that idea of competition and rivalry and sort of privatizing the process of evidence gathering and fact presentation <coughs> privatizing it to the parties, right, and kind of using the incentives of competition um, to generate the factual record and to move the trial process along rather than having the government do it, so to speak, right, rather than having an investigative magistrate and the judges, the state, in a broader, more objective sense, being in charge of the process. So in that sense, we've long had a, uh, that's one aspect, right, where the this kind of, these market-like ideas have always been part of the justice process. And so that wouldn't explain why we have a spike 
why things change sort of in the last 30 years. There's lots of other reasons for that, I think. But the one contributing cause I, I point to um, is that starting in the 70s is when we really developed the American law of plea bargaining. The Supreme Court never mentioned, didn't use the word plea bargaining or any variation of it until about 1970. There just was no doctrine, no rules around plea bargaining, plea negotiations until the 70s. In the 70s, the Supreme Court starts developing constitutional law of that. There's not a whole lot else that gets developed as a matter of statutory law or state constitutional law. Um, and so the Supreme Court in the 70s develops what I describe and argue is a very uh, kind of deregulated, market-like idea of, uh, of plea bargaining and set of rules that deregulate the parties' interactions in the plea negotiation process. Their goal is to kind of keep the state out, keep the regulation out, keep the judge's hand out, keep the rules about, say, trial penalties for defendants who turn down plea bargains. Um, keep that off the table, keep that unregulated, keep prosecutors' sort of motivations for plea bargain offers unregulated. To sort of keep the market for plea bargains, that's a phrase the court uses, the market for plea bargains, deregulated and kind of leave it to the parties, right, and let them pursue their own private interest, their own rival, rival interest in settling cases. All this is supposed to make the system more, more efficient. And I think it does, right? It makes it more efficient in the sense that you get more plea bargains. And when you get more plea bargains, that means you can kind of create space, right, in the justice system, right? You can dispose of cases more quickly, which means you can do more cases. So I think the contributing cause of one contributing factor of the spike in incarceration since the 70s or 80s is that we're able to do plea bargains even faster and in a greater proportion of cases than we used to be. And so we can get more convictions and get, put more people in jail with sort of the same amount of adjudication resources, right? The same number of prosecutors and judges and, and court, court, and court in, in infrastructure. And so the, rather than having a, a plea bargaining system that's slightly more regulated in ways that you see even in other common law countries that are pretty similar to us, like England and Canada, there's a, a bit more regulation in the sense of there's requirements, for instance, to disclose uh, more evidence before the parties plea bargain, and there's regulation of the difference between the plea bargain sentence offer and what the sentence would be after conviction at trial. There's some regulation like that that you see in other countries that you don't see in the United States. And so our plea bargain rates go up in the last you know, roughly 20 years from a very high baseline, right, by the 60s or 70s, and I think long before we were plea bargaining or getting guilty pleas at least in 80% or so of cases, and it varies for jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but roughly kind of 80% of cases were settled by guilty pleas through the 60s, 70s, maybe the 80s. Right? And now that rate is up to 90, 95 in some jurisdictions, 97 or 8%. And so I think that extra kind of 10% or so of plea bargaining cases is probably attributable to the acceptance of the, kind of this kind of deregulated, privatized competition model where the state, meaning the law and the judges, allow the parties to do anything they want to close the deal and give 
prosecutors, in particular, the power to close that deal quickly um, so that we can do more cases and put more people in prison. So one of the ways that this book cuts against the grain of, of some leading criminal justice scholars uh, without naming any names, but Daryl does name names and respond to scholars that, that say, no, the problem is uh, it's a problem. The problem is that we ha- that we have too much criminal procedure. Uh, that we is, criminal procedure is overregulated, and that's in fact the reason why things have gone so badly in the last few decades. That's why things have gone off the rails. Too much Supreme Court law, too much criminal procedure, constitutional criminal procedure is the is the problem. And uh, and of course we already heard Daryl start to talk about how no 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 it's a laissez faire system. We we have too little. Uh, so I'm interested in what what. Uh, uh, our, our panelists and Daryl think uh, about how you know is this a pointed attack on kind of a a consensus among some criminal scholars at least that you know it's the Supreme Court has been involved too much and that's the problem is it too much or too little of criminal procedure? I uh, I think it's the fact that the political input is uneven. So if you could think of the Warren Court as, by and large, introducing a lot more law into the work of the the daily work of a police officer, and if you could think of sentencing guidelines and sentencing commissions and other legislative innovations as introducing a lot more law into the daily life of a sentencing judge, you're left with some of the parties now much more constrained by law and others... (laughs) remain somewhat unconstrained and the comparison matters you know as as I'm a, if I'm a prosecutor and everybody else has less room to, to maneuver I become relatively uh, more powerful in that setting so I'd, I'd be curious to hear about Daryl's ideas about the impact of differential populist input or popular responsiveness uh, one abiding interest of mind is just how populist prosecutors are so I've gone out occasionally looking at uh, elections of prosecutors and I've wondered how that plays out. And on one level, prosecutors, if they're rational, wouldn't really think of themselves as popularly uh, you know, constrained because if an incumbent wants to run again, and the, the incumbent will win. I mean, we just know from the track record that incumbent prosecutors face challengers in their uh, election far less like far less often than say a an incumbent legislator from you know the from a you know state legislative district on the other hand when i spend time talking and listening with prosecutors they talk a lot about what the voters want and they talk about choices that are just not something my district would accept they have in their minds the things that are politically within bounds and the things that are politically out of bounds. So they talk as if there's some meaningful constraint there, even if the, the results of the elections don't, uh, don't end up confirming that they're all at great risk. Yeah. Um, so you, you all may have seen that a Duval County prosecutor right. who was very high profile um, and was involved in the Zimmerman, Trayvon Martin you know, prosecution, got voted out of office as an incumbent in Duval County and surrounding areas around Jacksonville, Florida. And that is the first time in decades and decades and decades in modern memory that an incumbent prosecutor actually lost. In Florida. In, in Florida. Yeah. Uh, and it, I, it may be that things are somewhat different now. I mean, people are starting to speculate that, wow, I'm, watched, I'm seeing a lot of news stories lately about prosecutors, incumbents who are losing over this or that kind of case. And 
I'm noticing those. I, I'm not willing to analyze by anecdote, so I'll, I'll try to withhold judgment on that, but it may be that the political dynamic is shifting. But I guess my question for Daryl would be, um, what do you see as the impact, not so much of political constraint on the system as a whole, but the fact that that political constraint is differential for the different ma- major actors in the system? Yeah, I'll have le- less to say about this because I- I'm sort of with Daryl on this point. I think he gets this right, so I'll let him speak for himself. But as I understand, one of the more significant points he's making is he's focusing our attention not on you know these c- critics of, cri- of regu- regulation of criminal procedure you're talking about. Focus our attention on rules applying to police officers, for example, in the area of obtaining confessions, statements, confessions, Miranda, or search and seizure, the exclusionary rule. Daryl's focusing our attention on is all the areas where there are no rules or no, not much way of law or rules. For example, no meaningful limitations on the discretion of prosecutors, right? And very, very little regulation, for example, in the area of ineffective assistance of counsel by defense lawyers, right? And, and, and no attention whatsoever, really, to the resources that, that indigent defense that, that people doing indigent defense have, right? They just leave that. That's all that, that free market space, right, where we're just going to leave these parties to their resources and just well, only very, 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 very modest sort of provisions for indigent defense. And, you know, to my mind, he gets, he, he, he's right about this. Um, I won't say anything more. Well, I think we should end on that note. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'll say this, I mean, Ronnie you can tell me if this is responsive. So, the, I mean, my last comments sort of dealt with that kind of the market idea of the plea bargaining process and the, how the law, the law reflects these sort of market-like uh, ideas and premises. Um, and I think the prosecutor context raises the, the democracy piece of it. We're the only country that elects prosecutors. We have a lot more democratic accountability and a lot more democratic responsiveness in our prosecutors and in many of our judges than any other. Uh, nation, and so this is one argument that, uh, uh, as Joe just alluded to, where I, um, where I describe, I don't think this is controversial, that, that we use politics instead of law. Right? We use democratic responsiveness and accountability instead of regulation to govern prosecutors. Right? We don't have a lot of rules on prosecutors about whether they have to prosecute, on what grounds they have to prosecute. We don't have judicial review of their prosecution decisions. Right? We leave that to the to the voters, ultimately, right? We leave that to the political process, to political pressure, to democratic uh, mechanisms. Um, that has sort of, I think, obvious and kind of familiar concerns. It raises obviously familiar concerns or risks about that kind of populist accountability leading to a sort of harsher criminal justice system, right? To a kind of tough on crime. Um, political uh, dynamic, right? I cite some studies of prosecutors who do um, seek harsher and achieve harsher uh, outcomes, do make harsher charging decisions, achieve harsher plea bargains in the year of their election than in the other three years of their term. Same thing, there are equivalent studies of state judges who are elected tend to give harsher sentences in the year of an election than in the other three years that they're, or six years that they're, uh, that they're on the bench. So that's, that's one effect you see. Right? When you look kind of comparatively at other, my comparisons are mostly kind of countries that are the closest 
closest to the U.S., right? I don't spend so much time comparing us to Europe, which is just different in so many ways with um, kind of bureaucratic civil, civil law justice systems. But if you look at Canada or the U.K. or, or Australia, right? even in that common law tradition, one effect of our democratically elected and democratically legitimate prosecutors is that legitimacy gives them a lot more sort of autonomy from the law or it allows us to um, trust, trust them being deregulated from the law in a way that you don't see in other countries. We have a stronger idea of the prosecutors as an executive actor, right, an executive branch actor, even in five states that prosecutors in the state constitutions are actually in the judicial branch of government. It's really interesting to read the case law in those states sometimes because they definitely think about the the courts are thinking about the prosecutors as an adversarial executive-like actor, but they can't actually say that because they're actually in the judicial branch of government. Um, the idea you know, sort of worldwide in the common law system, right, is that the executive is a, is that the prosecutor is a quasi-judicial, half-executive, half-judicial official who can't be as partisan as other parties and no other uh, common law criminal justice systems do prosecutors make sentencing recommendations, for instance, right? We just think that's obviously what prosecutors do, right? They push for a particular sentence that they think is the right sentence for the or the defendant. You don't do that in Canada or England or Australia. Their prosecutors bring the judge's attention to the relevant law, to the sentencing guidelines or whatever facts might implicate certain guidelines, but they just don't see it as their partisan job, right? It's, it, would be, it wouldn't be sufficiently ministerial and quasi-judicial and objective to, to do that kind of partisan adversarial, um, to take that kind of partisan adversarial role so that kind of partisanship right, is, is part of what we get out of the democratic process and of the kind of the deregulated process of not having rules that forbid prosecutors from making sentencing recommendations, as is the rule elsewhere. Um, and you see that play out, I think, in, in, in lots of different ways and lots of ways that are regulated. You see some pretty modest regulations, I think, in other places um, that you don't see here, like the regulation of the differential between the plea bargain sentence and the trial sentence in England, the plea bargain discount can be no more than one-third. It gets some very deferential and modest review by English courts of, of prosecutors charging or non-charging decisions. It's a common law tradition that would give prosecutors a lot of discretion. It's not really stringent review, but it's a, way more than we have, which is absolutely non-effect. I think a lot of that is traceable to the dem prosecutor's democratic legitimacy. We just trust the the people and the democratic process and the actors who are legitimized by the process instead of having law and regulation to, um, to cabin and oversee bureaucratic actors, actors who are not democratically accountable. Can I go out of order? So I know one of the reasons you guys come to this is to watch law professors fight. So I'll, having, <laughs> having given with one hand, I'll take away now with the other. So... Um, what would so you know, Daryl's just talked about the part of his argument where he addresses the sort of the Democrat, the ways in which the Democrats, the over democratic nature of criminal justice politics creates dysfunction, right, in, in our system. Um, what would be the source of norms and standards for his less democratic 
less laissez-faire criminal justice process. Is is Daryl guilty of what I call assuming a can opener? So there's this old, not very funny joke about an economist and other people are trapped on a desert island and they've got all these can, this canned food, but no implements, no tools at all. And everyone's busily trying to figure out how you can open a can with a coconut and do different things. And the economist says, I've solved the problem. First, assume a can opener, <laughs> right? Um, and, and my point here is, is Daryl's account essentially assuming a source of norms and standards for his sort of less democratic, less laissez-faire criminal justice process. I mean, our system is this way for a reason, because especially in comparison to you know European systems, I think we lack a central sense and source of authority for these standards, and we've we do this democratic market thing because of that lack. Where will, where will these new norms and standards come from? I'll, I'll let my colleagues add anything they want to to that. Well, no, that's perfect. I was going to ask next about the, uh, I mean, one of the reasons that Daryl's book comes out at an exciting time is that there's a lot more attention now to the role that counties play in criminal justice, not just states, but mm-hmm. counties. There's just a, a piece in the New York Times the weekend before last about a handful of counties in certain states that are just mass drivers of incarceration at a time when crime is going down. And a lot of prosecutors have said we don't need to be overly aggressive about pushing for felonies and minor cases. And some counties say, no, we're going to, the, the, we, we want to fight the drug war just like it's, you know, 1994. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so part of the story that Daryl tells us is about populism, but in particular about a, a, a localism tradition in the United States. And so one re- question is, you know, can you assume away localism? Are there ways of defragmenting justice in the United States, or is it just cut too much against our grain? Now, there are foreign countries within the U.S. that do that. For example, New Jersey at least has some, you know, centralization. Uh, so, you know, do, should we, do we just need more of the country to be like New Jersey, or is there, is, is there hope that we can all be more like New Jersey or Rhode Island? Or Rhode Island? What, what do you think, Ron? And, uh, North Carolina is not going to be like New Jersey. I know this. Uh, I, I suspect the same is true of Virginia. Uh, when I think about criminal justice in the U.S., I mean, the, I, I spend time on the road and talking to people, and I try to learn as much about different states as I can, but I inevitably know more about North Carolina than other states. And the biggest city in the state is Charlotte, and there's also a little town down near the beach called Shalote. And one of my slogans here is, Charlotte is not Shalote, that what they care about and what they pursue in the two different places are very different. And, you know, my view of law is that it is here to serve social needs and social desires, and it's really sort of inevitable that criminal justice is going to look different in Shalote and in Charlotte. Uh, And it does seem to me that a law-based system is somewhat harder to reconcile with localism because at least our tradition is that most of the sources of law uh, come from the state level. They not much at the federal level. Funding decisions make a profound difference on the ground when it comes to uh, local differences, but those tend to play out in the in the political area less so in the market ideology uh, front. But localism is thrives in a world where we depend on politics as our constraining force, and it worries me that we might try to create a system where Charlotte has to be a lot more like Shalote 
if we're uh, displacing politics as a source of control with law as a source of control. Yeah, so I'm, I'm reminded of a reference that is like already dated, I think, for our student audience. We had a uh, defense secretary about a dozen years ago who said, you go to the war, if you go to war with the army you have, not with the army that you would like to have. I think we have, we have the criminal justice, we have to administer the criminal justice system that we have, not the criminal justice system that we would like to have. Um, that's to say, I fully accept that there's this kind of path-dependent inevitability to the way that we have uh, a very localized uh, criminal justice system, especially with respect to the prosecutors and the courts. Um, and we just don't have, in the vast majority of states, uh, uh, an attorney general who has legal authority over uh, the, the prosecutors at the local level, as you do in New Jersey in the federal system and a couple of other states, Delaware, they, they're all... Alaska. All, all, all the states are small states. Um, there's nothing un-American about that. You know, we could, you could do it that way. It's just that in 45 or so states, we don't do it that way, and there's no sign we're going to change. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's one, ask, one way in which kind of a greater uh, supervisory kind of regulation, re- oversight within the executive branch is just, I think, kind of functionally off the table. It doesn't mean that um, very meaningful uh, regulation of the sort I tend to think would be a good, a good thing to try. Um, is is incompatible with or even very different from the kind of stuff you have in these deregulated state systems, right? So you have sentencing guidelines that apply to all cases across these local criminal justice systems, right, that affect how prosecutors and judges um, make sentencing decisions. You have um, (coughs) statewide disclosure, discovery rules. Ron's writing now about statewide... um, rules about judges being involved in plea bargaining negotiations. It's easy enough to have a statewide rule that applies to um, how plea bargains or charging decisions or any other aspect of the criminal justice system, the adjudication system, works out. Um, so you'll always still have some kind of local variation in the culture and in the discretionary policies of local jurisdictions, but you can still do a lot, I think, within that kind of decentralized and democratically accountable system um, in ways that look perfectly familiar to state criminal justice. I want to pose one more question and then I have to leave to teach. Uh, but you know, we could think of this uh, in Daryl's focus on, on free market criminal justice as but this, if we're going to go to Ron's hockey stick, that this is a, a, a market frenzy, a speculative frenzy. And I do mm-hmm. think that more people in, in popular culture and politics and the discussions about criminal justice are, st- are following the money and there's more discussion about costs and where do they lie and so Daryl has wonderful passages in his book talking about how this is a distorted market and uh, that you know we typically justify plea bargaining as a cost savings mechanism but actually there are these other costs that, that are externalized um, and so I'm wondering what, what everyone on the panel thinks that you know is, is this actually now a, a quite useful time to be rethinking uh, where the money goes and where it comes from. Is there now more of a rethinking of, of, of free market criminal justice going on in this country? I, d- I did just see it was a little depressing. There's a big report in Louisiana, which is the most incarceration-prone state in our, you know, uh, uh, in our country, and there was just a, a, a state report that said that you know, we could save actually significant amounts of money by releasing nonviolent offenders 
and the Louisiana Prosecutors Association responded by saying, well, you know, we're not sure we support this. Um, in Louisiana, there's a lot of incentives for sheriffs to keep beds full around the state. And if those beds aren't full, they actually could be in big trouble because a lot of them floated money to build large jails around the state. And so they, they, they really would be in financial trouble if they don't keep those beds full. And so there are serious market incentives for them to keep the beds full. They don't want to be releasing a lot of nonviolent offenders. Uh, so distorted markets. Uh, but, but, but people are talking about costs now. Maybe that's a good thing. Sure. I mean, this is interesting. I mean, so let me uh, uh, make this one point. I, I sort of worry about cost arguments for criminal justice reform because I fear that they sort of, they actually will end up tapping into one of the things that have been driving this sort of populist punitive politics of the last couple of decades, which is what I think of as sort of anti-instrumentalist rhetoric. I mean, I think one of the things that have been driving punishment to such severe sort of extremes is this feeling like punishment is a place where we show that we value human life above all things, right? That we haven't become this instrumental society where everything is just a means to some sort of greater end. This is the area where, my God, if you're talking about, you know, some violent offender or, or stopping some violent crime from happening in the future, no amount of money is too much. This is, you know, we, we know we live in a very instrumental society where we're all measured and marketed increasingly in all sorts of ways. But criminal justice, I think, is, is sort of become this almost place, this almost sacred place where we say, it doesn't matter what it costs. It doesn't, the statistics don't matter. We don't want children being molested. We don't want people being killed. You know, we'll hang the cost. Now, of course, and that's the rhetoric that you've heard for the last couple of decades. Now, it is absolutely abating. People are talking about cost. But my fear is if you base criminal justice reforms on cost arguments, we're just setting ourselves up for the next swing of the pendulum. It'll be some, you know, you let a bunch of people out to save money, and then it'll be some horrific crime. Everyone agrees it's horrific. And it's like, oh, oh wait, we're, now we're putting value on the life of an 11-year-old child, and then we'll be right back to square one. So this this rhetoric about costs and market plays out in, I think, very complicated ways. I, I do think the, the sort of political atmosphere for talking about crime and talking about the criminal process is meaningfully different today than it was 10 or 20 years ago. I, I, you know, it, I'll just say it feels different, and I, I think I can point to particulars to, uh, to confirm that. But it's also an environment that changes differently in different places. This is a place where um, uh, where you're going to see some places respond to arguments for change much more readily than other places. Uh, I think we're probably entering an area of more or an era of more uh, dispersion of you know wider variation in state practice than we've had in a while. And this strikes me as an empiricist as a testing opportunity. Uh, if you want to know something about the connection between uh, popular sentiment and crime, we've got a, a great deal of variety among the states in the political accountability mechanisms for just how closely different criminal justice actors are tied to the popular will. And it, it, Daryl's book does discuss um, occasionally the, uh, the variety among the 50 states and points out the 
very profound insight that there's not that much variety when it comes to movement on trial rates. That is, we've got an, a remarkable agreement among the states about how many trials we're going to be using. Uh, and he also notes that there's some serious difference uh, in the incarceration rates as you go from place to place. So, for instance, almost all of the national average downtick in the incarceration rate over the past few years, almost all of that is California. California is just one big state that has really changed things, and that can move the, the national average. Uh, another, but there are other areas where there might be dispersion that you know really um, could be worth exploring further in addition to what, what is already there in the book. So, for instance, things like bench trials – wildly different in some places than others, you know, five times the number of bench trials in some places than in others, or the, the uh, as we've already mentioned, the electoral c- accountability of prosecutors looks pretty different in five states than in some of the others. Um, so I think there might be some opportunity here for empirical testing of different political feedback models. There's probably less Uh, less opportunity when it comes to market ideology, which I think is both harder to measure and probably less dispersion there. But but there's some empirical testing possibilities here that that I'd like to hear Daryl reflect on. I'm all for those empirical testing possibilities. Um, And uh, what uh, what I'm less optimistic about is is, uh, finding... Thanks, Brent. Is is some findings coming out of that, that... uh, convince some jurisdictions that the models they see in other jurisdictions are worth following. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I tend to think that the change you see in, in criminal justice systems in all sorts of ways, in incarceration policies and discovery rules and just whatever the reform is, we just had a big discovery rule debate here in Virginia over the last couple of years. They went nowhere. Um, <laughs> that change tends to come not from uh, policymakers sort of seeing some convincing data and arguments and a functioning system under different rules or policies in other places. It tends to come from other uh, mechanisms and incentives like, like cost concerns or some big crisis that creates a moment for, a moment for reform like happened in North Carolina a decade or so ago. Um, and I'm with Joe, I think, on the kind of costs, concern with cost being a, being a sort of mixed bag. It seems to have been a, a, a modestly good incentive in the incarceration context. There's several states that have closed prisons and reduced uh, incarceration rates in the prison populations in recent years with kind of the cost of incarceration in mind. Um, it's got some bad effects too, or at least it has some... Uh, politically problematic effects, depending on your perspective, right? So we privatize a lot of probation services. We're privatizing some jail services now and charging the jail inmates and the probationers the fees for their um, for their probation services and for their nights in jail. They tend to be people who can't afford these things, and so the, when they fall behind on the fees, they can just get caught up in more contempt of court citations and sent back to jail. Um, it tends to be a, a counterproductive way, in my view, to solve the problem of funding probation services by privatizing the, both the agency that does it and the uh, 
sort of charging user fees in effect or trying to make the probation system work on work on user fees. That to me is a kind of counterproductive, not very promising way of addressing cost in, in the justice system. Um, and then I, I have one chapter where I sort of throw out this thesis that I would love a, a, an empiricist to test if it, if it can be done. I think it can be done, right? which is that the, the greater efficiency of the plea bargain system doesn't end up saving us money by allowing us to use less courts and fewer courts and prosecutors and judges to do the same amount of cases because we can dispose of cases more efficiently. It just allows us to do more cases with the amount of, of judges and prosecutors that we have. So making plea bargaining more efficient, which we think we're doing because we have high caseloads and, and not enough resources to process them all through a slower bargaining process or through a slower trial process, can actually end up having the perverse effect of bringing more cases into the system by creating more capacity in the courts. The analogy I use is, is highways, right? It's a lot of jurisdictions, like traffic gets too high. It looks like the highways are really crowded. What, what should you do to solve the traffic problem? You should build more highways, right? And so you'll have more space for all those cars that are on the road. What ends up happening is traffic engineers and the economist types who study this thing tell you what ends up happening. More cars come on the road, right? You create greater capacity on the road. You don't end up with with less traffic in LA because you built more highways, you just end up incentivizing more people to use that new highway capacity. Right? You can think of highways as making driving cheaper or making driving more attractive because you've added more capacity to the system. Um, and I think that kind of induced demand idea is a real possibility in some um, criminal justice adjudication plea bargaining context in a way that might mean we have a kind of perverse feedback loop by paying attention to costs, right? We're saying we don't have enough money to process all these cases in a more elaborate procedural mechanism. We've got to make it more efficient and do it more quickly. But I think there, that, that then creates some perverse incentive to put more cases into it because you have more capacity per judge and per prosecutor to do more cases. I have one other question, if yeah. I can... Um, toss it out there. Daryl, as I read the your, um, the book, the theme that comes out is these three different constraining forces. So there's democratic accountability and there's market private ordering. There's a form of, of uh, regulation of preventing some, some things from happening and authorizing other things to happen. And then there's law. Mm-hmm. And the account is that because those other forces are there, there's less law than there otherwise would be. In other words, that if you want more law, you've got to shrink the other areas, that there's sort of a zero-sum quality to this. And I wonder, and and you've given examples of where that happens, where judges say, I'm not going to get involved in regulating the prosecutor because that's somebody else's job. That's the job of the political system. So I would be overstepping my bounds to jump in where politics regulates. But I wonder if we might be entering an era where it's not either or, but it's both and. That if you add law, you don't necessarily have to displace political constraint as an additional, uh, you know, uh, feature of the landscape. In some areas, a constraining feature of the landscape. I think that's absolutely true with respect to the kind of democratic piece of our system, right, to elect right. prosecutors and judges and the like, 
you can certainly have all sorts of rules and still have democratically elected prosecutors and judges. I don't think it works quite the same way on the kind of market idea, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think of the plea bargaining system as unregulated or deregulated, right? What, it's not that there's no law there, right? It's just law that specifies a market-like system that says the parties can, can bargain in a way that looks like a private contract model. We don't have you know, sort of unconscionability standards or stronger promise uh, enforcement rules in the public sector as opposed to the private sector. You could just have different rules there right, that would look like a more regulated contract model. And so there, there is this kind of either or, you know, either rules that define a kind of free market or rules that mm-hmm. define a more uh, public regulated uh, adjudication interaction. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll intervene, or, or George yeah, can intervene I mean, and I, act I, as I moderator. Know, and, I know that some yeah. of you have to yeah. um, perhaps get off to, to class and follow up Mr. Mm-hmm. Garrett off, but you know, this might be a, a good time. We perhaps have time for a minute or two uh, to see if there are any questions uh, in the audience in connection with either the book or some of the themes that, that, uh, that have been discussed. So we could probably take one or two. Yeah. Uh, I was interested that right after your comment about the Um, well, these guys can speak to this as well as I can. I, w- I, I would say uh, there's not a universal consensus that her book answered it, that it's um, that she has part of the story, part of her focus, right, is just um, not so much on explaining the high incarceration rate as explaining the um, consistent ways that the system works against uh, African Americans and, and people of color generally, and the mass incarceration aspect and otherwise. The debate among the people who pay attention to this is whether the whether that hockey stick spike occurs because of changes in sentencing policy or one big sort of rival theory by our colleague and friend John Pfaff is that maybe it's um, he has good data that it's prosecutor discretion policy, prosec- you know, very roughly and boiled down. Prosecutors until 20 or 30 years ago used to charge Offenses in a smaller percentage of cases that they get from the police, that the police report to them, than they do now. Maybe prosecutors were sort of screening out two-thirds of the cases cops give them and charging in one-third until 20 years ago. And then more the last couple of decades, they've been charging in two-thirds of the cases. That's consistent with Michelle Alexander's thesis, right? Because the cases that they can be charging can, have, can be racially dis- disproportionate in the, in the cases that they're choosing. But it's a different explanation from saying that the spike in our incarceration rates is due to mandatory sentences or to harsh sentencing policies. John Pfaff points out that the average sentence in most state prison systems is A, kind of surprisingly low, somewhere around three years in a lot of systems, and B, hasn't changed much in the last few decades. It's just that we've got more people in the system, and we've got, you know, we've got a small number of people serving these very long sentences and mandatory sentences. The average sentence hasn't changed a lot. It's just that we've got more people in prison. It can be the, um, the greater enforcement uh, 
stage at the, at the decision at the prosecution stage that might be the explanation. The only, you know, yeah. I think that, that puts it nicely. I mean. The only thing I'd add is if to the uh, race is a critical central part of any criminal justice story and uh, the puzzle for readers of uh, Professor Alexander's book is why now? Like why these decades for this troubled relate uh, uh, involvement between criminal justice and race relations? Because it's not as if there was a golden era of race relations in you know nineteen twenty or nineteen forty or nineteen sixty, and it, and the hockey stick was still going along pretty flat there, and then it's nineteen eighty that it shoots up. So that's the why now question is a I think something of a mystery for uh, for the wonderful. Uh, Alexander uh, book as well. I think uh, Professor Bill Stuntz, uh, formerly of, of UVA, has a very interesting take on that, and that is that it's the, the great migration that really tells a big part of the story, that you have African Americans going in great numbers for, for the first, you know, six decades, well, the last two or three decades of the 19th century and then the first half of the 20th century, so lots of new arrivals in Detroit and in Los Angeles and in New York and Philadelphia, and it's that great migration that really changed the, the racial dynamic with criminal justice in a lot of parts of the country. Josh? Um, so I, I kind of feel like all of these theories are actually compatible. I agree with that point. And I mean, I think, so I think, Joe, you, you know, you've written about the way in which monstrous offenders um, generate uh, tough-on-crime Policies, and so I think you know if that's true. We're looking at the bad cases. We're looking at the monstrous other. Um, when we look at others in a racialized society, uh, it, 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 and, and we're incorporating things like prosecutorial mm-hmm. discretion, it, it, it's it's predictable, if um, lamentable, really awful, that um, it's going to play out in racially disparate ways. And then when we ask the why now, well, we live, we live in a digital age, and going back to you know the. 70s and 80s, a media age where uh, the monstrous other is going to be able to be advertised um, and disseminated to society at large such that they're going to get behind these top and crime policies. And then the free market explanation puts into place an efficient uh, uh, system with which to process all these people that we're now uh, lining up and, and piling through the system. I, I mean, I, I think my only like very light and friendly critique, Daryl, is I'm surprised that you use the term deregulated to refer to the flea marketing market, although you kind of got to this during your comments around four or five minutes ago. I don't see this deregulated, right? Procedurally, it's regulated. It's regulated to be a well-functioning, efficient market. So, you know, Sanibel says prosecutors need to keep their promises, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Lafler and, and, and Fry say that uh, defense attorneys need to, you know, sometimes push uh, their, their clients to take pleas, or at least mm-hmm. that's one reading of it. You know, all of this is, a, a black market is not a trustworthy market, it's not a credible market, and so it's actually like a well-regulated market, but a market that doesn't focus, it's not regulated along the substantive dimension, it's only yeah. regulated on the procedural dimension. We don't regulate coercion in that market, mm-hmm. you've got that with substantive unconscionability. We don't regulate how much weight the prosecutor can bring to bear. I would call it a regulated market, a well-regulated market, but well-regulated in the direction of efficiency, not fairness, um, and not anti-coercion. And so I think all these things fit together to create a system that's 
racialized with high incarceration mm -hmm. rates, and where it's somewhat surprising that we even see a pushback against it. You know, Stunt's talked about the one-way ratchet. I think that makes the biggest surprise at all is that they, we're starting to see something like that, at least in some places. Now, I, I completely agree with that. I, I use deregulated loosely in the kind of the political sense, and I, I hope it's maybe clear in the book. But yeah, we talk about markets being deregulated, right? It's not that there's no law in the markets, right? It's a particular kind of law that um, you know leaves the parties to compete and to negotiate, and then the state enforces that without a lot of substantive criteria for the outcomes of the market process, right? And that's what I mean in the same thing. In the, that's what I mean by a deregulated system is really a, a system that doesn't regulate the outcomes of the plea negotiation process. It regulates the rules by which the parties interact. Can I end with a quote? Go ahead. From, yes. just on this very point, there's one paragraph I loved in this, and it goes to this point about the role that this market ideology plays. This is from Daryl Zablog. The market narrative in criminal procedure diminishes the public, elevates the prey of the economic. This is the part I love. This market narrative combines a claim about improvement through my private markets with an assumption of inevitability. The exigencies that compel ever more efficient administration is a natural process, not a product of human decisions or official policies. It's just sort of the way things are. And I think that's, that, in my mind, is one of the great contributions your book makes, is that this market ideology, hey, it's just the way things are. This has sort of been an enabling mechanism through which a lot of this punitivism has been really realized. Well, on that note, we've run out of time. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to our panelists. And, and Daryl, congratulations on your book. Thank you. Thank you.